Welcome to Tech Rap Queen. Welcome to you, the audience, my royal court. Remember, each Wednesday, I drop a new rap session filled with rich and regal stories, insights, and experiences for you to enjoy. In this rap session, you're going to hear from one of my inspirations in these user experience, UX, and design streets, my design research sister, Oveta Sampson. She is such a gem, and I just cannot wait for you to experience all the amazing things that she has to share. She is currently a principal creative director at Microsoft, an IDEO alumna, yes, the IDEO, the world-renowned design firm and genesis of design thinking. Uh, Aveta is on her way to publishing a book. She is a three-time Ironman. Hello. I mean, this sister is bad. Do you hear me? Stay tuned uh, to hear what I said that made my research sister respond like this. Girl! And consequently led her to share this profound insight. In an automated future that is humane and ethical, our jobs will be deciding what not to design. Royal Court, get ready. Let the gem dropping begin. Energy, vibes, inspiration. I'm Renee Reed, and this is Tech rap queen let me first start off by saying what an inspiration you are when i found you i was at a point in my career where i had not seen other black women especially black women who were in senior roles in design research. And you were just this beacon of light and inspiration. And then just being able to reach out to you and communicate with you, it just, it has just been such a joy. <laughs> and I and I remember I felt like a mama bear in UX research. And here's this wonderful Renee. And then then every time I turn around, you on stage and you talking and everybody's talking about and I said, look at her. Just blossoming in the world. And I'm so excited to see your success. It makes me so happy. My heart is just so happy right now. You would have thought that we've known each other for years. We've met, we've hung out, we've gone for coffee. We've done all these things, but that is not the case. No, that isn't. It's funny because, um, you know, my best friend says this about me. She was like, you never met a stranger. And one of the things that I love in this, in design and tech, especially with women of color, is I realize how um, barren it could get, right? How barren that we can feel. And so whenever I see another woman of color, young or or mature or whatever, who is trying to make their way in design and tech, I want to offer them whatever kind of help and support that I can in a, in a loving and, and, and motherly way. So we know we battling, we battling out here in design and tech. We, we, we on the front lines. And so we have to be unified. We, we have to support and lean on each other. So, so yes, you can reach out to me anytime, even if you don't know me. Well, I'm extremely grateful for your sisterhood. So thank you. I want the Royal Court to hear something that you've mentioned to me, which is so profound. 
and you've used these words, widening the narrative. Uh, and you've mentioned to me, this is going to be the title of your book as well. Uh, so where did that come from? And you know, how does that show up in what you do today? So I was a journalist and I became a journalist because I was a, I was a okay writer, but I really was tired of people telling the narratives of my South side of Chicago neighborhood. And I wanted to write our own narratives. I wanted to write our own stories. I was 13 years old when I wrote my first story because I saw a story in the newspaper that said that the neighborhood that I grew up in that had block club parties and, and aldermans who came and, and we got to volunteer and Bud Billiken parade and I was a cheerleader and I, I had, you know, um, a parade just for back to school parade where we gave out free school supplies. That neighborhood they called it drug infested and violent and all this kind of stuff. And that wasn't my narrative. Mm. And so I got into journalism to widen the narrative. Right. And then they told me I had to be unbiased. And I was like, you keep that because media is already biased. So we just going to tip the scales and make it unbiased towards being less biased. Um, and as a reporter, I had two jobs. I had to report the news and I had to widen the narrative on the news. And so my jam is widening the narratives. I, I, I widen the narrative. As soon as I walk into the door, you should widen your narrative when you work with me. And, in, and I did it in, in media and, I, and I'm doing it in design and tech because I'm challenging all of your narratives of how we, we, we create products, especially in, in an autonomous uh, automated and artificial intelligence future. I love that statement that you uh, said, and, and that's my jam. And I'm definitely going to start leveraging that and asking people, right? What is your jam as a designer, UX researcher, design researcher? You know, what is what is your jam? Yeah, yeah. Like I've my whole existence is about you know changing paradigms. Like one, you know, when I was a design research leader at IDEO, somebody said, what's your job? And I said, my job is to change paradigms. When I walk into the door, people have a certain paradigm about a, a service or a product or, or, or the, their, the people that they, they sell products to. I, I don't like user, but the people who, who, who take their products, buy their products and, and try to use them in their lives. And everybody has a paradigm about that. And as a researcher, my job was to change that. Why? Because their paradigm was coming from their point of view. And so my whole job was to change paradigms, not only for the customers that we were working for, the clients, but the designers that I was working with to change their own paradigms. Um, if, you, if you go through a design uh, process and at the end of it, you have the same paradigm and point of view that you had when you started, then I, as a researcher, didn't do my job. Right. Because research is not in service of design. Come on. Research is not like we're not some, you know, productive, you know, we're not some production, production. You know, right? Where we're just like, okay, we're gonna talk to some people and then we're gonna turn out some quotes. Um, research is to influence design, literally. So if if I haven't changed your paradigm about how a product or or a service sh should be then I haven't done my job as a researcher because you don't have the answer. When you are going to design something, even if you're improving an existing product, even if you're starting new and from scratch, even if you're doing that little sexy I word called innovation, 
It's always about the future of something that doesn't exist, right? So nobody has the answer. Mm-hmm. Literally, nobody is right. And so your job as a research is to a researcher is to build confidence. It's all about where you go from zero confidence to 100% confidence or 90% confidence or 80% confidence. And so your job as a researcher is to build confidence with evidence. And there are all forms of evidence, right? There's, there's evidence that you can document and track in data and numbers. And there's evidence that you can see in observation. And there's evidence in, in, in culture and ritual and, 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 and values and, and intangible things. And, and those are expressed by people. And so they're all equitable in my mind of, on evidence. Like numbers don't take precedent over what somebody feels about your products. I can understand why people would think that because they say, hey, I can measure that. But you can also measure if somebody gets hurt or not by your product. And <laughs> that that is something that is just as evident as as you you people not using it or people abandoning the rates or whatever like that. And so it's a it's to me it's all equitable. You have mm-hmm. to treat them equitably, and they all need to be um triangulated, like no evidence stand on its own. Nope. And so for me, if you're going for a future-oriented practice, you're you're creating something that doesn't exist, then you know you are not going to be right. So what are what should you be? Confident. Period. In the story. That is our job. And so that's what I would always challenge designers. If if a designer did a wireframe and came up to me and said, we should do it this way, I would say, where does your confidence come from? Mm. Right? Where does your confidence come from? Where, where does your confidence come from? And it and and sometimes it could come from, hey, I have 20 years of experience in service design. And and every time I do the service design, this happens. Great. Let's go confirm that. We're good to go. Or it can come from, hey, I talked to six people who use this product in the last week. And this is what I said. Great. So it's all levels of confidence. And so as a researcher, my job was to raise the level of confidence. And sometimes that took me to we were working on an autonomous vehicle project and and I remember I designed Lee he came to me and he said you know we were supposed to design the autonomous vehicle of the future where people want to own something and he says you know I don't really have confidence in ownership I don't really understand that so I went and got the foremost expert on ownership this guy has written about ownership for 30 years he was the first guy to write about co-ownership and and in, in businesses. He wrote about ownership of a pro, uh, outside property. He wrote about, he, this is the guy who, who did the meta study. And an hour left, an hour with this guy, we had a framework and, and we codified of what it means to own something, even if you didn't buy it, right? Like, so my job was to help my leads understand what ownership meant. And then we applied that to autonomous vehicles. So, so as researchers, we have to we're, we're the smartest, dude. We have to be one step ahead of everybody else. We have to anticipate everybody's needs. And that includes the people that we talk to to get inspiration from and co-design with, as well as the designers who are in the room designing with us. And so I, I feel like if, if you're designing a product without research, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Why would you do that? Why would so you do that? So when you when you have or can have access to uh, information guidance that can show you which way to go, 
that gives confidence. you confidence. It gives you confidence. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And and something that I just as I've grown in my career, uh, that I love to empower my designers with as well is, and I'm going to use your terminology here, is the confidence to know when not to do something. Girl. All right. Like, <laughs> this is in the book. Stop. When you're talking about AI, I, I just wrote an article for Interactions Magazine. And, and, it's, and it's called A Lovely Day, A More Human-Centered Automatic Future, right? What do we need to do to be, have a more ethical, um, more humane, automatic future? And the first thing we, I have three things. The first thing we have to do is recognize we are the problem, not the technology. It's us. We're the racists, the homophobes, the, the, the sexists. The, we're, we're the ones that puts all that into technology. Technology is just like a little puppy just being trained by us, right? And so whatever it turns out, it came from us now. And then soon it's going to be replicating what we turn out. And that's the problem, right? So we got to recognize that we're the problem. Um, the second thing is we have to widen our narrative. Um, what Western, you know, I, I, I have been, I have been a practice practitioner of design thinking. I worked at audio. Come on. You know, I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought this it's the best, the best. And then somebody said, what does that come from? Student kid, you know? And I said, Oh, where, what, what? And so then I had to go, you know, I know where human centered design came from. I, I understand it, but I had to go back to to the moment that it was it was born, and it was twelve white guys in London in 1962, right? Like, okay, that's great. Scandinavia, Copenhagen, we got you. Western, lovely, but it's not the only way to design, right? Um, so the Western ideas is individual, slave master, individual, and device. And you go to Polynesia, and they do AI totally different communal relationships. It's it's about community. So let's widen our narrative and, and design in, in, in multiple ways beyond the Western ideals that we have. Um, and then the third is uh, resist the urge to design, right? We don't have to design out everything that is humane. And that's the hardest one of all. And, and in the future, in an automated future that is humane and ethical, our jobs will be deciding what not to design. End of story. That will be our job. And all of our research and all of our wireframes and all of our prototyping will be to show and work with people to decide what not to design. And people, I say that and people think I'm just like trying to burn the, 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 the house down. And what I'm trying to do is make a new house that's more ethical and humane and, and less biased and, and less kind of focused on that we have to design everything to fix a problem. And that, the paradigm. that is hard. That is changing a lot of paradigm. To tell a designer not to design, that's, that's just like telling them not to be a designer. But in an automated world, um, and I liken it to the 19, the middle 60s, uh, early 70s, um, when when the medical profession started to uh, experiment with bio biomedical ethics, right? They uh, with IFVs and 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 test tube babies, right? Like when they when they first started out, and and literally you 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 could not put the baby back, right? Like once. Once somebody created a baby in a test tube, that was it, right? 
And then came all of the bioethics and all of the conferences and all of we can't do that. And and so so we, we're at that precipice now, right? Because we are creating technology that can create technology. And so if we don't decide what not to do, we will be the same place that a lot of medical place medical ethics are right today, um, looking out for the person that's breaking the rules. Take us back to the journey on getting to IDEO. I mean, the bedrock of design thinking, right? The global renowned design studio or firm, rather. Uh, Walk us through that journey. I had graduated from DePaul University, shout out Blue Demons, with my master's in computer science with an emphasis in HCI. Uh, I was working at DePaul at the time, which is why I went back and got my master's. I got totally blessed. I, I got it from a Creative Circle ad and went on a temp job. And they were like, can we hire you for full time? And I said, yeah. And they said, we're going to pay you not a lot of money. And I was like, hmm. And then they were like, you get to go to school for free. And I was like, yeah, sign me up. And so DePaul has, uh, that's one of their perks for, for employees. You, they, they pay for the first kind of like $6,000 and then, and then you only have to pay the taxes and the rest, which is great, but they take it out of your paycheck. So that first paycheck, I was like, what the, (laughs) where'd it go? Where'd it go? Hello. I'm going to make my rent. So, but you know, $50,000 for $10,000, like, you know, Hey, it was a good deal. Um, and so I, it was May or June when I graduated and I was doing some freelancing, working for some software companies doing UX, user experience. I had always been kind of like a tech nerd. Um, I learned how to code when I was nine and had a Commodore 64 and all that and wrote hello world and thought I was a God. And so I learned Fortran by God. Um, so that's real coding. No offense, but yeah, I learned first. My dad was learning Fortran, so I said, "Hey, I, I gotta learn it." And yeah, I was like, um, "So Fortran and Cobalt was were the first." Ooh, thing. not the Cobalt! Wow, yeah, yeah. come on, yeah. throwback. That's it up by being a millionaire right now. <laughs> and so, but then you know, I went to school, and they were like, "Oh, you write so well. You should go into English. Forget this tech stuff." And I was like, "Okay, great, whatever." Anyway. So I became a journalist and all that good stuff. And then then decided at 36, I was getting divorced and I was homeless. And I was driving from Oklahoma back to Chicago to go stay with my mama because I had lost everything, my job and money and whatever. And I wrote in my diary, you know, I want to make epic shit and I want to get into tech. And that's those are the two sentences I wrote. I didn't know. That was my plan. I didn't have a roadmap or anything like that. I didn't know what it was. And I ended up freelancing and I got a gig at Creative Circle and they loved me. I was doing like proofreading in Spanish because I speak Spanish and they were like, you're, we can send you everywhere. You, you're amazing. And they sent me to DePaul and I had a three month gig there. And like the fourth month, I was like, hey, y'all, am I still going to get paid or what's going on here? And they were like, hey, we, we kind of want to hire you. And so they hired me to run their website and and. And so I started going to DePaul and I started doing UX stuff and usability studies and all kind of everything I learned in school, I did 
on my job. I was like, okay, let's just try this out, see what happens. And and I found that I was really good as a researcher because I had been a journalist for a very long time. And so you and you know that those skills are transferable. Once I learned the syntax and I learned what it meant to take research and turn it into design, it was like, you know, a no-brainer. And so I graduated in June after that crazy illustrious uh, journey of no money, no house, no nothing. Um, and now I had a master's degree. And and there was this link on Indeed.com said senior design research lead, IDEO Chicago. And I was like, oh, that I'm reading the I'm reading the job description. And I'm like, whoa, that sounds like me. I totally could do that. You know, I I think I heard this place called Audio. I think they said it something in my in my master's. I read some paper. <laughs> so what? you were applying not even knowing. Like almost blind. I mean, obviously when you get an ACI degree or you get a design degree, you know what IDEO is, but I wasn't like I wasn't an IDEO fangirl, let's just say. Got it. I, I was not like following, you know, David Kelly trying to figure out what Tim Brown was doing on his weekends. And so, so I, I saw Indeed.com and it said IDEO Chicago looking for a design research lead. And I misread it and thought it said entry level design researcher. Right. So I, I'm like, all right, I'll go. I'll go and apply. This is all truth. Y'all should just write this down. So I go apply and I apply, I send my resume and I don't hear anything. I'm like, great. So I go to like Nielsen and I go, you know, in Chicago, there's like this route of UX. You either end up at Motorola or you end up in Granger or you end up like everybody, like whatever they graduate from DePaul, they end up in one at Allstate, like, cause it's like, it's a DePaul network. So these are the places you go. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go <laughs> try all these places where everybody else went, Walgreens, you know. And, and finally I get this call from Michael Chapman. He, you know, he, he's, he leads design research there and he's, and he says, um, I'm calling you cause your cover letter, take note folks. I wrote, I wrote, um, different cover letters for every job that I applied for. They were very uniquely tailored. So once I did do the link on IDEO, I did look them up. <laughs> Because that's what you're supposed to do. I was like, oh, okay, human-centered design. Oh, okay, they do this. Very famous for design thinking, blah, blah, blah. And so I wrote my cover letter. Now, this is this is the worst thing. And I, Michael and I laugh about this today. But I wrote this cover letter about the Challenger explosion. So right up, leading up to the Challenger explosion, there was this engineer engineering firm that um, – this well-known thermodynamics firm that was working with NASA and they were visualizing data. They were showing NASA um, the temperatures of O-rings and the predictive analysis on O-ring snapping and cold temperatures. But the problem was they did the, the visualization by months instead of in ascending or descending order. So if you looked at the visualization, you couldn't see a pattern. You just saw O-rings and temperatures and all that kind of stuff. But if you if they'd have just done it in like ascending or descending order, they would have saw like super easily that in between the months of January and March, O-rings had a tendency to snap. So the engineers were trying to tell NASA this and all this kind of stuff. There are all kinds of things that went wrong with the with the challengers, but basically the O-rings 
the challenger, they, they booked the date in January. They tried to tell them to change it. They didn't. And basically the O-rings froze and they stopped. Right. And, and eight people died. Right. On, on the thing. And so my cover letter was about like, it's enough to, it's, you could do all the research that you want, but if you don't visualize it in a way that people can understand and storytell and design that your research will go for not really, basically, if you don't influence the impact, the, the outcome, that's, that was the point of the cover letter. So Michael had read that and he said, Hey, I'm calling you because your cover letter, tell me more. And then he invited me in for an interview and I forgot my laptop. So always have your portfolio on your website, boys and girls, because I was going to a design firm and I didn't have my laptop and Mike, I walked in the door. And so Michael said, okay, set up your laptop so we can see your portfolio. And I was like, W2F, what? So always have it online. I said, well, it's online. So can I just type in my, (laughs) my, my uh, address? He goes, oh yeah, we can do that. And so then I just went through my process and everything. And I, I, and I remember Toy, Toy and I, are, uh, we know each other now, but of course she was on the other side and she was just shaking her head going, yeah, that looks familiar. Like we do that. Right. And so I was like, great. Um, and I ended up crying in the interview. Girl, I did everything wrong. 100%. I burst out in tears because Travis, who was a managing partner, he was in New York at the time. So we were doing like a Zoom interview. And he asked me a very simple question, but it was triggering. He said, how did you get here? If you know my story where I put my wet clothes that I took out of the washing machine and didn't even get to dry because I was running away from my ex-husband into a basket, grabbing my birth certificate, my passport, and all the money that I could find, and anything that was important to me and throwing it into my car and driving nine hours from Oklahoma to Chicago, escaping and ending up freelancing and, and doing Airbnb shout out to Airbnb for two years. So I can make money to, to afford my own place and, and getting myself back on my feet and going back to school and, and transitioning being 36 with 20 year olds and learning wireframing and all the things that I had to learn. And not having, um, uh, as you know, as they say, a pot to piss in and, and just trying to get my life back on track as a, as a woman who, who lost everything uh, in a relationship. Um, when you ask a question, how did you get here? That's a loaded gun. And the waterworks came. And poor Travis. Travis is the sweetest, loveliest person. But he just didn't know how to he was like, are you okay? Like, and plus he was, it was over Zoom and everything. And I was like, oh my God, I feel bad for him because he was just so uncomfortable. And so, so, you know, it, and so I cried, <laughs> I cried. And, and I remember leaving IDO's doors going, there is no way these people are going to hire me. I'm such a basket case. And, and I got the call. And so the, the one thing from that story is I never wavered on my confidence in my ability to turn out human-centered design. And that's what showed up in my process, in my portfolio. I cannot tell people how important their portfolios are. Um, I don't need you to tell me. I need you to show me. And that's what they saw. 
And so I ended up, you know, working there for almost three years and, and doing some amazing stuff and being the first design researcher to work with data scientists with IDEO. And then they acquired the firm and, and you know, now, you know, IDEO has this thriving AI business. And I was helping them to pioneer that on the human, human center side and writing IDEO the framework for our ethics and the policies and all that good stuff. Like that was, that was all, that was all just amazing stuff. Right. Amazing stuff. Amazing journey. Uh, And then you continue to do even more amazing and incredible things at Microsoft. What, What does that look like now for you? So I'm trying to get CFOs and CEOs to think about the end users of the, of our products and, and figure out a way where we as a company can design products, not just to sell, but experiences for people who are going to use them and, and solutions to very complex problems. And there's no place to do it to me to solve some of the world's most complex problems than Microsoft. And so my beginnings are very humble. There is nothing in that story that would even give you an inkling of, of, of awesomeness or whatever, but I was just very persistent. Like I, I just knew what I wanted to do and nobody was going to tell me different. And I don't really care if people told me I didn't know what I was doing. I still was very, very determined to widen the narrative. You have such uh, an incredible story and I just, I'm so grateful for you sharing your journey what advice would you give people who, especially those coming from academia, I talk to a lot of or mentor a lot of students who, um, you know, may not have a design uh, path in terms of what they've went to school for, but they've gone to school for sociology, anthropology, things like that, you know, the cognitive sciences, you know, what advice would you give those students coming from academia? It only takes knowing the vernacular. Like in tech, it's all about the syntax, right? Mm-hmm. If you are doing code, it is all about the syntax. Java has its own syntax. A CSS has a syntax. C++ has a syntax. Once you know the syntax, you good. And so in UX research, it's all about the syntax. Do you know the, the, the way that the language is supposed to speak? Do you know that how to translate what you do when you say, hey, I run a research study in sociology and I go and I talk to communities? I'm like, oh, so you, you do co-participation design. That's what you do, right? Right? And so now they're learning the syntax. And so once you learn the syntax, you just put that stuff on your resume and your website, you're good to go. This ain't... This ain't bright. I know people think it's rocket science, right? Mm-hmm. They try to hide it from us. But once I got in there, I was like, "Woo!" Right. Right. We're going to open the I'm gate. Telling. We're going to open the gate and I'm telling uh, tell and screaming it from the mountaintops and letting folks know. Come on, yeah. as we should. Yeah. Uh. So you're working on a book. <laughs> and uh, about um, AI. And first, I, I want an autographed copy, of course. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about what the book is going to be about and what the book is not going to be about. It's not about uh, what went wrong with AI. There, there, there's enough books about that. 
It's really about as you as a practitioner of design and research, um, what can you do to to help with in your craft to to do things differently so that we don't have the problems that we had in the past with AI. And some of it is pretty practical, you know, practical tips that I've gleaned from working at Microsoft and know people at Google and all that kind of stuff. But mostly it's like a reflection of, of, of what a kind of design fiction of what a, a world could actually look like that's more equitable and humane. And I explore the idea of the human machine relationship. Um, not the human machine uh, task uh, slave narrative um, that we have right now. Slave master is, is written in, 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 in algorithms today. Um, and so, uh, although GitHub said that they've taken that out, so that's good. Um, that's the start. But like, what is it to have a, a relationship with a machine? How could we design a machine that is sentient and has agency and has a relationship with with people who are in the same ecosystem space with it? Um, And this came from working on AI projects where there were multi. So so we in interaction design have a very distinct two binary agency network that we design in. I am the user and this is my device. Right. I am the user and, and, and I control whatever. But when you get into AI, it's multi-agency. There's a lot of control that, that machines will have on their own. They will decide to do certain things. And so when you design in a multi-agency network, you have to think of it less as the individual user that's exacting control over a device and more of an ecosystem and a community of of multi-agents that have agency, multi, multi-entities that have agencies that may have competing interests. Um, and so you can't build a, a, a research survey on that one, right? Like, you, like you, you, you know, I'm going to interview some people on what, what it's like to have this ecosystem in their car and whether, you know, and people are going to be like, what? Like you, and so that's what I learned you know, and I knew when I was working on this stuff and, and I had to like invent these, we had to invent these research methods to, to kind of get at these intangibles. And so one of the things in the book is about where we have to worry less about people's needs and desires and their motivation, which is where we are now, which is great. And more about their values and their rituals and their culture. We have to worry less about people's needs and desires and their motivation, which is where we are now, which is great. And more about their values and their rituals and their culture. Gem drop. That's weird, ambiguous territory, right? Because it changes, right? Among users. And so again, we're going to scale. So how does this work? And so we need to build these stage gaps in the machine relationship when we build these products. There has to be this moment where the machine and the and the human can communicate about the future of their relationship together. To use your words, this is weird, ambiguous territory, but so intriguing, so fascinating. And I just, 
I just love your wealth of knowledge that you are sharing, the gems that you're dropping. Uh, Royal Court, I hope you are just enjoying this rich and regal information and knowledge that Oveta is sharing with us. So thank you. Um, what brings you joy as a leader? What brings you joy? I found joy when people are, are reaching their North Stars and 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 knowing how hard they work to get there that that brings me 100% joy mm-hmm. um and when people decide that they're going to do it that's 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 amazing because the outcome of that is beautiful mm-hmm. yes it is and that that's much better than than anything that i can do in tech or whatever it's like when people find their purpose right and you you had some kind of small witness to that that's joyous. Isn't that amazing when you can get to the point of your life where you rejoice when you see other people happy? Yeah. I love that you had that insight because I didn't, I don't think I felt like that like 10 years ago. No, it was all about me. Right. Like right. it was all about like, I have to find my joy somewhere in my, in what I do for me or for my family or for mine. But as a, as a leader, as a manager, the worst feeling in the world is is managing somebody who I know is not happy, who is not reaching their potential, who who's struggling. That to me is worse um, than anything, and it's worse than the best. And so, as a manager, one of the things, or as a leader, one of the things I want is to everybody to be able to provide the opportunities for everybody to reach their north star on my team. And so uh, there are certain things that I do. I believe in a collective leadership model. Um, and can you talk about that for people who don't are not aware? Yeah. So, so collective leadership model is is a model that's really good for design processes. It's something that um, was practiced at IDEO, although they didn't really call it that, but that's what it really is. And it's basically where everybody. First of all, it's a it's a it's a it's it's different than the traditional model where you have a leader and then everybody's under that person. A collective leadership model is everybody in the team leads at some point. And so it requires uh, the team to depend and to trust uh, and to transition the leadership uh, amongst themselves at different points. It works really well in design because it allows the researcher to be in the lead in the front or whatever. And then the researcher transitions to the interaction designer, and then they may transition to the engineer or whatever. And, and so in collective leadership model, it, it works on a lot of trust because you have to transfer leadership. You really have to um, take a back seat to somebody who is in their team. And, and it's, it's, and it wor- it only works if it has a diverse group of people because if everybody has the same skill set, then you don't transfer leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's beyond collaboration because it it there's an expectation of leadership within the team. Um, and so I believe in the collective leadership model. And and for my team, one of the things that I had them do is to um, write their own job descriptions. And the only rule that I had in the job description was they couldn't tell me what skills and tasks. They only had to tell me what they were responsible for. And so in the responsibilities was how we determined what 
when they were going to lead during the creative process. And so it was really good for distinguishing swim lanes between design and PM, um, which can get kind of like cross, I think, sometimes. I had never worked with a PM, so I was like, PM, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, when I got to Microsoft, what is that? No, I do that. What do you do? <laughs> and so, so it was really great for my senior PMs and my junior PM to write their job description so that I knew the kind of things that they wanted to do. And, and, and afterwards, they, to see them take on those responsibilities as a leader was, was just amazing for me. It, it, it is one of the most happiest things that I've ever seen was to have somebody who was struggling and not feeling like they had ownership to, to showing that they, that they could take ownership and, and lead and grow. Just sitting here and and talking with you and hearing and listening to you, I know that I have grown uh, in just this time uh, that we've been able to spend together. So thank you, thank you so much for blessing me, blessing the royal court, uh, for all this amazing energy, vibes, and inspiration that you brought to Tech Rat Queen. We are definitely going to have you back when you uh, release the book and and talk more about all things AI and uh, and what we can do as UX and design practitioners. So uh, again, thank you. This this gives me life right here. Thank you. You can find Ovetta on LinkedIn. That's Ovetta Sampson, S-A-M-P-S-O-N. And also check out the podcast notes as well. Royal Court, once again, another wrap session done. This has been an amazing experience for me. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Please be sure to tell your friends, listen, like, subscribe, share. Again, let them be a part of the Royal Court experience. As always, thank you. Be well. Stay blessed. Peace. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Tech Rap Queen, be sure to visit therenee.com. That's T-H-E-E Renee.com. Also, follow me on Instagram at the underscore underscore Renee.